So I want to begin with a question this morning. The question is, what are you thinking? Like right now, what are you thinking? Um, you, you know the drill. Many of you have been to church before. There's just kind of this, we shift gears at this point, right? Like it was all kind of participatory, engaging. You were singing, you're praying, you're reading, you're laughing. And now we're kind of shifting into the sermon. And it's it just like, if we're not careful, we can be really passive and our minds can wander and we start thinking about all these different things. So with that in mind, so what are you thinking? And so I, I thought about what you were thinking and I wrote down some ideas. Maybe this is kind of what you're thinking. Maybe you're thinking about this past week and you're like, oh, I have so much work at school or at the workplace and it's just kind of on your shoulder. And right now you're kind of passively going and thinking about all the work that you have to do. Maybe today, maybe this week, maybe this month. Uh, maybe you're thinking, oh, financially, I wish the decimal would move two spaces to the right because you have some financial concerns you're thinking about. Or maybe there's some, you know, medical concerns and you're wondering, oh, when's the doctor going to call me back with results? Uh, maybe it's not so much medical, um, but maybe you're thinking just about, I really need a haircut. These split ends are getting out of control. Or maybe it's relational. You saw her this morning and she didn't say hi to you and you're wondering, is she mad at me? Like, she looked at me kind of funny. What's going on there? What's the vibe? Uh, maybe you're just, honestly, it's Sunday morning, and so you did, we did Saturday night, and you're super tired again, and you're like, oh, I'm so tired. Uh, or maybe you're not so much tired, but you're hungry, you didn't have your second breakfast, and so it's grumbling right now, and you're just struggling, and you're hoping to get to the next few moments without uh, fainting. Or maybe you're thinking about your fantasy league, you're thinking about the game, you have two words in mind. Ooh. Or maybe you're thinking, this is kind of a weird meta introduction, and you're thinking, maybe like I'm thinking, ah, oh, I wish he was preaching, not me. <laughs> it's interesting, I think maybe you resonate with some of those, but um, one of the things that wasn't listed there that hopefully we can cultivate is a sense of anticipation, a sense of delight. Because I know what it's like, right? It's like, oh, I'm going to read the Bible now, I'm going to zone out, it's so boring, so irrelevant to my life. Hopefully after this morning, after we look at some of the aspects of the Word of God, there's a sense of delight and anticipation and focus even and zeal and joy as we every week come and try to unfold and unpack something of the Word of God. And so with that, uh, we're going to be looking at Leviticus 18 and 19 per before. It's a large text, and so if you want to open up a paper Bible, there's some in front of you, page 100, so we can skim along with me. And what I want to look at today in Leviticus 18 and 19 are four characteristics of the word or the law of God. So four characteristics that hopefully will cultivate a sense of zeal and delight whenever you look at or think about the word of God. So Leviticus 18 and 19, four characteristics or four observations about the word of God. Number one, and we saw this already, but we'll go back and highlight it again specifically. One of the things you see here in Leviticus 18 as uh, the word or the law is continuing to be given to the Israelites is that it's actually life-giving. It's a gift. It's a good thing. Gifts are given in relationship. Uh, for example, you give gifts to people you know and probably love. You give a gift to your children because you love them. You give a gift to your spouse because you, you love them, etc. And in the opening verses, did you hear as the text is being read by Mark, did you hear the relationship? Did you hear the good, gracious relationship that's bound up between the Israelites and their God? And it's in that good relationship that the life-giving gift, the goodness that is the law of God, the word of God is given. Let's go back and review it, see if you can hear it. Verses two and, verse 2, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. And that phrase, I am the Lord your God, it's repeated in verse 4. It's a relationship. I am the Lord. I am your God. 
But notice this picture as well in verse 3. You must not do as they did in Egypt where you used to live. That's a reminder of how God redeemed them from Egypt. This is a reminder of how he brought them out from under the hand of the superpower named Egypt. Gracious redemption is bound up in that phrase, Egypt. But it doesn't end there. He looks forward as well. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. So in other words, in verses 2 and 3, you see this reminder to the people of God that I am the Lord your God. I am your God. You are my people. I have just redeemed you out of Egypt. I am bringing you into the promised land, namely Canaan. So in this context, this is a reminder of of this relationship, this good, gracious relationship that is between God and his people here. And so there's blessing here. And God gives then, in this context of relationship, this word, these laws. So it's a life-giving gift. And so you might be wondering, well, how how is the word life-giving? At best, it seems irrelevant. At worst, it seems very constricting and limiting and like a buzzkill. Like what's, how does that happen here? How is this a gift? Okay, remember where we've been before. The book of Leviticus comes right after the book of Exodus. And at the end of Exodus, God says to his people, I'm going to dwell among you. And the question that you're left asking as you come to the book of Exodus is how? Like how is that going to work? How is a holy God going to dwell amongst the unholy people? Well, the answer, as one author puts it, is Leviticus which begins by explaining the sacrifices that address sin and enable them to worship this king rightly. We saw that in our opening weeks in Leviticus 1-7. to How is a holy God going to dwell amongst an unholy people? Answer again, Leviticus, which provides them with priests to intercede on their behalf and lead them in worship before the king. That's Leviticus 8-10. to How is a holy God going to dwell amongst unholy people? Answer again, Leviticus which gives them laws to teach them how to deal properly with impurity. Leviticus eleven eighteen. How is a holy God going to dwell amongst unholy people? Answer again, Leviticus, which provides a yearly ceremony that we looked at last week, the Day of Atonement, to which to remove every ounce of sin and impurity from the kingdom. And finally, how is this holy God going to dwell amongst an unholy people? Answer, Leviticus, which provides a whole series of laws, some of which we're going to look at today, in other areas, to direct them in living like a kingdom of priests and a holy nation that they are. So, Leviticus, those laws that we're going to look at today, it, it's a life-giving gift. It's given in the relationship of grace. God has redeemed them from Egypt. He is blessing them by bringing it into this promised land known as Canaan. The whole scope of Leviticus is just a gift to them because it's going to show them how they can dwell in the presence of a holy God. Here's what one author says. In short, While we look at Leviticus as a burden, the Israelites looked at it as a life preserver. It was the very thing that taught them how to live in a relationship with this king who had just entered into covenant with them and descended into their very midst, as you see towards the end of of Exodus. So do you see? The law, even the law that we're going to look at today, and the whole scope of Leviticus, it's a gift. The word of God is a gift. It shows us how to live. It's a gift. It's a life-giving gift. It's valuable. I have, with, I'm assuming, millions around the world, been reflecting on the life and legacy of Queen Elizabeth II. And I was listening to two people talk about her coronation, which actually happened in 1953. And it's a very elaborate ceremony. And part of the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II is that she's given a Bible. And as she is given the Bible, these words are spoken. 
our gracious queen, to keep your majesty ever mindful of the law and the gospel of God as the rule for the whole life and government of Christian princes, we present you with this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. Did you hear that phrase? The most valuable thing that this world affords. Now, it's unbelievably interesting because also during the coronation, Queen Elizabeth is given St. Edward's crown. St. Edward's crown is made of solid gold. It's 12 inches high, weighs almost 5 pounds, has 444 precious or semi-precious stones, and is valued at around $4 million. But nonetheless, during that same ceremony, she's given the Bible. And she said, no, the Bible is the most valuable thing that this world affords. And as you think about Scripture, and even Psalm 19, which we read earlier, we would have to say, from the Scripture's perspective, you're right. The Bible is the most valuable thing this world affords. Psalm 19, verse 10, speaking of God's Word, they are more precious than gold, than much pure gold, sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. Something very beautiful and and true about what is said about the Scripture there. It's valuable, or to use the language you've been using this morning, it's a life-giving gift, it's good. Also this week, I heard somebody make this comment. He said, you know, Christians actually read the Bible almost every day. I was like, wow, that's surprising. And then he went on to say, a lot of Christians say, you know, on Monday, I almost read the Bible. Like, I, th- I thought it was a good idea, and so I woke up early, and, but then, you know, the siren song of TikTok was calling, and boom, six hours went away, and I didn't get a chance. But then on Tuesday, I set my Bible out that, the, the night before, and on Tuesday, again, I, 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 I almost read it as well. I meant to, but then the dog was barking, and the kids were screaming, I had to go to work. And Wednesday, well, you know what happened. I almost read it on Wednesday. And so it's true. Many Christians read the Bible almost every day. I get it. It's hard. The meme is true. There's all these things that pull away from Scripture. But hopefully we can see and and delight in something of the Word of God as a life-giving gift given in the context of grace. Second, the Bible Scripture is also countercultural. Now, we saw that in verse 3, but let me just highlight it again. It's countercultural then, and it's countercultural today. Again, just again, verse 3. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live. You must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. So what follows in Leviticus 18, or really in all of Scripture, it's countercultural. And Scripture knows that. God knows that. He says, look, this is going to be very different than the Egyptians. This is going to be very different than the Canaanites. Like, it's just going to be countercultural, which is kind of the point. Remember, the, the theme that we've been seeing over and over and over again in the book of Leviticus is holy. God is holy. He's set apart, and he calls his people to be set apart. So, of course, when he gives these laws, these guidance, these life-giving guides for how to live, of course they're going to be different. That's kind of the point. Be holy as I am holy is the call of Leviticus to the people of God. And so specifically, in Leviticus 18, if you want to skim, uh, Leviticus 18 particularly talks about a a very specific sexual ethic and family-related guidelines. So for example, verses 6 to 17 prohibits incest. 
Don't have sexual relationships with your mother, your stepmother, your aunt, your aunt by marriage, your sister, your half-sister, your stepsister, your stepdaughter, your sister-in-law, your daughter-in-law, your granddaughter, or your step-granddaughter. Verse 18 prohibits uh, taking a rival wife. Verse 19, sex that makes you unclean in the Old Testament. Verse 20, adultery. Verse 21, child sacrifice. Verse 22, same-sex acts. Verse 23, sex with non-humans. So thus you see something of, of the culture, of the surrounding culture, and we know that incestuous sexual relations were practiced in Egyptian and Mesopotamian royal houses. Further, Egyptian and Canaanite worship contains some of the activities described in later verses. But you also get a window into the Israelite life. Like, going through the prohibitions against incest, like all these very detailed prohibitions, you might be wondering, like, why did the text need to be so explicit and specific? Well, again, think about what Israelite life was back then. Tense with your family, your extended family. It's tight quarters, close contact, little privacy. So God is very specific about what type, like incest in general, but specifically types of incest that are um, prohibited. It's also countercultural, this is the third idea, in the sense that it is also very expansive. In chapter 19, if you skim with it, it might ring a bell, because it's a little bit of a recap of some of the Ten Commandments here towards the beginning. But then in verses 9 and 10, the law expands and cares for the poor. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. In other words, in Leviticus 18 and 19, in the law of God, it's not just about sexual guidance. That is, we ought not to say, well, God's word is just anti-sex. Well, here, even just in two chapters, yes, there's, there's, there's sexual prohibitions, but there's also the, pro, the admonition to care for the poor as well. Now, think about this from a, from a modern perspective. The Bible will not be boxed in. Leviticus 18, the guidelines for sex, you know, it sounds very conservative. Leviticus 19, the concern for the poor, sounds very liberal or progressive. But the Bible is embracing both, right, back to back there. So in other words, the polarization that is so common today is not embraced by the Bible. It's not either this or that. It's both this and that. So so what we see here is the law is a good gift given in the midst of a gracious, redemptive relationship. But should we actually accept it as a gift? That is sometimes in our culture, maybe perhaps even in our culture, and even within the church, our view of the law is very... mm, It's kind of restrictive. It's kind of limiting. It's kind of out of date. So, question. Should we pick and choose to accept some parts of the law, or are we actually doing that already? For example, some conservatives would uh, like the sexual ethics of Leviticus 18, but downplay Leviticus 19. On the flip side, uh, some liberal progressives would emphasize the poor in Leviticus 19, but downplay or view as outdated the sexual ethic of Leviticus 18. In other words, how do we interpret these laws from so long ago? I want to show you a clip from a, uh, a show. It's an older show now. The clip was aired October 18th, 2000. And you'll see from how the clip looks, it looks rather dated. It's from a show called The West Wing. And in this 
very short clip I'm going to show you, the president, played by Martin Sheen, chastises someone who holds the sexual ethic of Leviticus 18. And he's going to say, well, you're being inconsistent. And I think even in this very, very short clip, I think he captures, the president captures the approach that many, maybe even inside the church, have been applying or maybe not applying the law. Let me show it to you and see if this resonates uh, with you. And Mr. President, the Bible does. Yes, it does. Leviticus. 18.22. Chapter and verse. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions while I had you here. I'm interested in selling my youngest daughter into slavery as sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. She's a Georgetown sophomore, speaks fluent Italian, always cleared the table when it was her turn. What would a good price for her be? While thinking about that, can I ask another? My chief of staff, Leo McGarry, insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 clearly says he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself, or is it okay to call the police? Here's one that's really important, because we've got a lot of sports fans in this town. Touching the skin of a dead pig makes one unclean. Leviticus 11.7. If they promise to wear gloves, can the Washington Redskins still play football? Can Notre Dame? Can West Point? Does the whole town really have to be together to stone my brother John for planting different crops side by side? Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing garments made from two different threads? Think about those questions, would you? So the question, are those that hold the sexual ethic of Leviticus 18, but not the prohibitions against wearing clothing of mixed fiber, for example, are they being consistent? Maybe you've thought that as well. We'll just pause here before we kind of try to unpack this a little bit. I recognize that some of the issues in Leviticus 18 are very uh, sensitive and personal and real and charged. And I recognize this is a large group gathering. And so there's some limits here. And so I think it's always better to have these conversations about charged issues such as the sexual ethic in Leviticus 18 in smaller groups. Because in smaller groups, you can hear someone's story, why they think this or why they think that, or what experiences, both good and bad, they've had regarding some of these things. And so all I want to do in, in the next few moments is, is it's more pedagogical than personal. What I mean is I simply want to deal with the text and try to unpack what is the text actually saying and, and how do we interpret it. So I'm going to limit myself to that. In a more personal one-on-one or smaller group gathering, we could go a lot deeper and have a, a better discussion. But just with that said, how do we understand, how do we, how do we interpret some of these Old Testament laws? I think here's a good principle. We don't pick and choose what Scripture still applies today, but we do let Scripture pick and choose. Like We don't pick and choose what Scripture still applies today, but we let Scripture pick and choose. And what do I mean by that? When you read a story or watch a film, and then you read it again, you read it differently. Of, of course you do. How can you not? For example, do you remember in Toy Story? Lotso? I remember watching Toy Story, I think it was three, and when Lotso was introduced, I was like, oh, he's so cute and kind. But, spoiler alert, he's actually not that kind. He turned out to be a very uh, unkind character. If I were to watch Toy Story again, I cannot not know that. Like, how I interact with that film has, already, has changed because the storyline has been unfolded and, and I know what happens and I, just, I, I understand what happens earlier differently because of the storyline. When Jesus comes on the scene, he, as we've seen in previous weeks, 
fulfills aspects of the law such that to go back to them would be wrong. So for example, last week, Day of Atonement, sacrifice, right? Well, now we don't sacrifice. Why? Because we've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all, Hebrews 10.10. So you understand the Old Testament differently because of what Jesus has done. Or even two weeks ago, we talked about food laws. But then we see in Mark 7, Jesus says, it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. And in saying this, Jesus declare all foods clean. So, as you look at the narrative arc of Scripture, and you know what Jesus does, how he fulfills aspects of the Old Testament, you can't go back and it would be wrong to sacrifice right now. Because the sacrifice through Jesus is final, once and for all, full stop. And so you read these differently because of the fulfillment found in Jesus. So Jesus changes how we worship, but he doesn't change how we live. So some of these moral laws still have significance. That's why you see the sexual ethic of the Old Testament repeated in the New Testament. What about penalties? I mean, Martin Sheen's character talks a lot about some of these penalties here. Why don't we stone people? Here's what one author says. Sins continue to be sins, but the penalties change. In the Old Testament, things like adultery or incest were punishable with civil sanctions like execution. This is because at that time, God's people existed in the form of a nation-state, and so all sins had civil penalties. But in the New Testament, the people of God are an assembly of churches all over the world living under many different governments. The church is not a civil government, and so sins are dealt with by exhortation and, at worst, exclusion from membership. Under Christ, the gospel is not confined to a single nation. It has been released to go into all cultures and peoples. Here's the idea. If you grant the narrative arc of Scripture, it it does fit together. And if you allow this narrative arc to be the framework by how you discern what's applicable and what's not applicable today. Now, a lot more could be said, but that's the framework I think you could respond to, for example, uh, some of that dialogue that we saw in the West Wing. There's a narrative arc to Scripture, and through Jesus, some things change, but some things don't. You have to have that interpretive lens to understand how to apply text like we saw this morning. Lastly, the law is also reflective. That is, it doesn't just, laws always reflect the lawgiver. And the same thing is true here. For example, in the United States, we value personal property rights. So therefore, we say you can't steal. In a similar manner, the law reflects something of the character of God. When God says to be holy as I am holy, he's not just telling them how to behave, he's telling them what he's like. So for example, One author writes, when God says that we must care for the poor, we learn that God has compassion on and helps the needy, even at the cost of profit. We saw that in Leviticus 19.10. When God says that we must not lie, we learn that God always keeps his promises. Leviticus 19.11. When God says that we must love our neighbor as ourselves, we learn that God loves with perfect love. Leviticus 19.18. So there's something about the law that reflects the nature of who God is. Namely, that he is holy, loving, truthful, etc. Now, in and of itself, divorced from the Scripture, the law then can be very daunting, right? Because what do you see in the law? You see something of God. It reveals who God is and what he calls us to. You see that God is holy and he calls us to holiness. In and of itself, that is a heavy weight that will crush us. Who is up to that task to live a holy life, holiness being what God is like? Well, there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus brings that together. 
Jesus brings together who God is and what God commands. That is, Jesus reveals who God is, right? But at the same time, he perfectly kept the law. So when he dies on the cross, he's not dying for his own sin. He's sinless. He's rather dying for our sins. And therefore, because Jesus, yes, reveals who God is, but at the same time reveals and fulfills what God commands, therefore, those who put trust in him are not excluded from God's holiness. But rather, we have been made holy the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Do you feel that weight there? Left in and of ourselves. The law shows who God is. He's holy. What he calls us to, holiness. We can't do it. But thanks be to God in Christ, who reveals who God is, but also lived perfectly, we can be made right through his sacrifice. So, four observations, four reflections on the nature of God's law. So hopefully, as we come to the word in the future, Yes, we receive it as a life-giving gift, revealing who God is, reminding us of his redemption through Jesus, and showing us graciously how to live a life, even a life of holiness. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Even though it's challenging and challenges us, Lord, remind us that it reveals who you are and reveals your love towards us. Because in Jesus, he not only showed who you were, he also fulfilled the law that when so far as we put our trust in him, we can know you, the holy God. Even though we ourselves are unholy, we can know you through his sacrifice. So Lord, help us to develop this posture of delight in your word so that we can know you more and live lives gracious in response to your grace to honor you. For this we ask in Jesus' name, amen.